Welcome to the Real World Podcast. Real World is a film festival and screen institute dedicated to the advancement of Canadian BIPOC screen-based talent. Listen to the Real World Podcast to learn more about screencraft, find out about career opportunities, and hear tips about navigating the Canadian screen industry as a BIPOC professional. Today's episode features a panel recorded at our 2019 festival, Come Shadow Me, Mentorship and Shadowing in the Industry. Enjoy. So here we have our next one that's starting, Come Shadow Me, Mentoring and Shadowing in the Industry. So it is... Uh, shadowing is a great way to learn your craft and accelerate your career. Find out what it takes to get into the industry, how to build those relationships, and how to set realistic expectations for both the mentee and mentor. So we have a wonderful panel here that's going to be telling you all about their own um, experiences, sharing those with you. Uh, first of all, I'd like to introduce the moderator, Damon. Delavera, uh, Canadian actor turned producer. Damon has been responsible for bringing to the screen some of Canada's most innovative feature films. Poor Boy's Game, Rude, Love Come Down, H, Proteus? Oh, yeah, okay, Proteus and Lie With Me. Under the umbrella of production companies Conquering Lion Productions with partner Clement Virgo and Film Show Inc. Delavera's films have been distributed internationally and have been selected for festivals around the world, including Cannes, Berlin, Toronto, Sundance, and Rotterdam. De La Vera's first feature had its world premiere in official selection, Un Certain Regard, at the 1995 Cannes Film Festival. So I'm going to pass it along to Damon, and he can introduce all of these illustrious panelists. So thank you. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming out on a Friday. Friday afternoon when the sun is shining. Um, I think we have an incredible group of people assembled here that's going to give you a little bit of insight into uh, both shadowing and I would also say mentoring we're going to sort of touch on as well. Um, and um, I think if you have questions, we're going to save them for the back half. Um, so please remember them or if there's something really burning that comes up and you want to put your hand up, we'll, uh, we'll see if we can address that along the way. Um, so to my left uh, is Floyd Kane, who is a writer-producer uh, who worked many years as a lawyer and a senior executive within the entertainment industry. Um, and um, I'm going to actually throw it over to Floyd to talk about something that he's currently engaged with um, to give you a little bit more detail on what's going on right now for him. But he is uh, has been working with CBC, I'd say, uh, on your show for the last four years. Two. <laughs> Two years, okay. It seemed, it seemed longer, but there you it go. It feels longer. Um, tell, tell us about that. Um, I'm doing a legal drama for a CBC at the moment called Digstown. We just finished shooting our second season. <clears throat> Um, and uh, we're just uh, we're in the editing process right now, uh, so that's going well. And uh, currently trying to set up a feature film uh, to shoot next year as well. Just because the way that my business works with my partners, that we try to do like a TV show and a film every year. Right. So that's. Uh, that's what we're working on right now. Um, and how does it feel uh, to wear a producer hat these days, um, sort of leaving the executive role behind? Um, you know, the executive thing was actually re a really great way, and I was going to talk about this later, but it was a really great way of getting to learn the industry, because I feel like by the time I stepped outside to write full time, I had probably been in more editing rooms and sat with more editors than most showrunners had. Right. So it was sort of like, I, like it was a great way to understand holistically the process of 
uh, television or filmmaking. It was your way of shadowing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, and then uh, we have Adam Fagan, uh, who is a development executive at Incendo Media. Um, recently uh, joined with TVA, I believe, and um, he's been managing the creation of TV series and movies, um, spanning 12 years of experience. Adam, can you can you talk a little bit about something current that's going on that you're excited about? Sure. Yeah. On the uh, on the movie side, we just I think started. I have to turn your. Uh, yeah. There we go. Now can you hear me? There we go. Uh, on the movie side, we just started production on our fifth movie of the year called Within These Walls, uh, being shot in Montreal uh, for Bell Media and Lifetime in the U.S. Um, and on the TV side, uh, which I can speak to a bit more in detail later, we just started a writer's room on a new series we're working on with Amazon. Um, so my role in development is I will work with writers and creators uh, from an embryonic idea um, all the way up to a fully polished script. And at that point, I will hand it over uh, to my lovely colleagues in production. Um, we produce five movies a year at Nintendo, um, and on the TV side, we have a pretty robust slate in development. Uh, we were executive producers on the first two seasons of Versailles, um, and that was our first foray into series television. And springboarding off that um, is our new series, and behind there, multiple series uh, with that ambition, like Versailles. Um, and that's us at Nintendo. Yeah. And we'll come back to talk more detail about your Amazon series. And then the inimitable Jennifer Podemski, uh, actress, producer, writer, director. Um, Jennifer uh, is also uh, currently working on a documentary series. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what's currently on your plate, Jennifer? Sure. Hello. Um, I am currently going into production on a show that I've been writing for five years, um, a drama series in the incredibly difficult format of the half-hour drama Wow! <laughs> uh, for TVO and APTN um, called Unsettled. It's an indigenous fish out of water moves to the reserve after living in the city for a long time. Um, and uh, that's 10 episodes, and I've just been writing, producing, and we're gonna, I'm gonna co-direct with um, my partner. And uh, I also have Future History, which is a documentary series. I am a person who only produces what I create, so I don't know if we're gonna get into any of the differences of Absolutely. all of these kinds of realities, yep. but I, I am, you know, I own a company called Red Cloud Studios, and it's in one bedroom of my house. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I make it look really good on Instagram. <laughs> so I get calls about coming to do a tour on my, at my studio, and I never let people come. <laughs> That's good, and they want to come more because of <laughs> yeah, that, probably. So sorry, we're not, we're not open this year. Um, how, how did you get your start in the industry, Jennifer? Um, and, and did mentorship play a role in that? Um, I'm going to say, first, I was an actor. I, I am still an actor, for those of you in the room who are making films, I'm still an actor. I, uh, I started as an actor, and I, I think shadowing was really where I became inspired to be a producer and creator, because I was an extra. Mm -hmm. And when I was an extra, I knew exactly who to hang around. And that was the monitors, the director, the producer, and those people. So that was sort of the what opened the door to me being inspired to be a producer and director. Kind of like an unofficial shadowing as, as I a background assigned, performer. I was self-assigned <laughs> to be the director, producer, right. DP, shadow, extra. Very similar experience yeah. here. Uh, it was sort of like uh, being an actor, you could be on set almost 24-7 if you were working that day, and you could stand around and observe everything. Everything. Great great way to do it. Yeah. Um, and was there a specific experience that you had where you thought, okay, I can do this, I want to do this on my own? Um, what was that sort of first project that you were able to get going? 
Um, that my first project really came um, through a lot of mentorship. I mostly was very tired of being a part of productions. I only ever played indigenous characters and uh, had never, except for Kent Monkman actually mm -hmm. on his short film, had never worked with indigenous people. So I was always working on shows that were uh, included indigenous characters that never had writers, directors, producers, or anybody else for that matter on the crew um, who were native, and I wanted to change that. So when I was about 24, I was on a show called Riverdale. I knew a, a girl, a co-star, who had her own show, and I just sat with her every lunchtime, and I was like, tell me how to make a show. I need to, I need to make shows. Right. Then that was it for me. Since then... I've been making shows. Yeah, and, and I'd say that back <clears throat> when we were starting out, there weren't really formal mentorships or shadowing programs. No. That's something that has really started coming on a lot more, I think. Yeah. Um, Floyd, can you talk a little bit about that, um, your relationship to, to mentorship? Um, and if maybe uh, you, can, you can offer advice to young people looking for a start for their career in the industry. <laughs> um, I... I think for me it was it was very different because I had started like my first job in the industry was as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So I worked as an entertainment lawyer for probably six, seven years before becoming a production executive and then becoming a producer and then leaving and deciding to write full time. Um, I will say that in terms of mentoring, I think probably as a writer. I think the key to mentoring is you have to write and you have to read, have people read your work and then you have to hope, like you get lucky like I did and I submitted a script, this is like back, like back in like the late 90s, submitted a script to Wayne Grigsby um, thinking that he would just come on board and you know, make it happen. And Wayne, just for people who don't know him, Wayne is probably one of the most prolific uh, Canadian showrunners that we have. Um, I think he's since retired. Uh, but the thing was is that he read the script I'd written. He then said, look, I don't want to do this project, but I think I want, I'm going to give you this script of mine to rewrite, and I'll pay you to do it, and we'll just, like, this will be my way of trying to help you get your start as a writer. So those are the kind of, like, that kind of opportunity was, like, really helpful for me um, as somebody who was spending a lot of nights just writing and working alone. Well, he must have been really impressed with your script <laughs> to, to offer you a rewrite of his script. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, he's, he's just a really, I think, I think it's about finding people who are willing to be generous with their time. I, I do think sometimes as uh, creative individuals, um, and business people, we get a little bit, we do, there's a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. And I think because, I mean, you know, Adam, I can't speak for you, but I, I, I sense that our situation is pretty much the same. Like, I work for myself. I'm one person. I don't have employees. So you spend a lot of your time, like, it's, there's no separation between home life right. and work life. Right. And so it's really hard to take on everyone who comes and ask for like you to read their stuff, mm -hmm. but I do try to be generous with my time, and I think that's the thing that you know, when I can, I will, um, just because of the experience that I had with Wayne. Right. You know. Right. That's great. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, maybe maybe tell us the story about how your project from Amazon actually came through an incubator? Sure. Yeah. Um, it's actually quite an interesting trajectory and. I think, you know, kind of one of its kind, I've never really heard of a project taking this course, but there's a fantastic program um, in Banff. If you ever get the chance to go to the Banff World Media Festival, uh, take that opportunity. Um, you get such awesome exposure to creatives, not only in Canada, but across the globe. And they have um, very much a speed pitching initiative there, uh, very similar to something that Real World has. And we were pitched in about a five 
five to 10 minute speed pitching session, um, a pretty ambitious, dark, compelling cartel drama. Um, I can't say too much about it because we haven't officially announced it yet, but we picked it up uh, for development and developed a script, and we pitched it to a Canadian broadcaster for a specific channel in Canada. And as you can imagine, going through the creative process with this broadcaster, they wanted us to lose the sex, the drugs, the violence, <laughs> and everything that made it unique as a cartel drama. Oh, Canada. We were going to be ending up like a Disney series at the end of this. And it went into turnaround, and we, um, we took it back to Banff a few years later and pitched it to executives at Amazon. And at the time, they were really uh, wanting to carve a niche in Latin America. And this project checked a lot of boxes for them. And we're now uh, in development with Amazon. We just started the writer's room, as I had mentioned. And it's such, um, you know, it's it's a great snapshot on taking uh, taking risk. You know, I, I'm not a creator myself. I don't write. Um, but I have a gut and a gut instinct. And taking shots on projects as a development executive is something that I always need to be mindful of. Um, I think the great opportunity we have now um, in the development world is there is a home for so many different types of projects. We don't have to just keep on creating procedurals after procedural after procedural. We can, we can find these unique stories. We can, we can find creators who have a diverse perspective, a unique point of view, and those projects will find a home because we're in a global marketplace right now, mm -hmm. and we're becoming a lot more globally literate. So our series that is created by a Canadian will be predominantly for a Spanish-speaking audience, 50% um, Spanish, 50% English. And uh, that's the glory of developing now in this space. And your team is entirely Canadian. Entirely that's, Canadian. That's writing this yeah. show. That's really amazing. Yeah. Um, can you can you uh, talk a little bit about your company's relationship to bringing younger folks into the production chain? I know there there seems to be a kind of barrier to entry sometimes, and I think um, I'm I'm assuming most people here are sort of interested in in knowing like how can I take my ideas to you? Like how can I what are, what are some of the places that I can go in order to pitch? Um, I know there's a program here at Real world, and there's a, n a number of other programs that are like that, but uh, do, you, do you have any advice that you can offer up? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll sort of give two perspectives, um, you know, myself in development and then on the production end, because all of our production is done in Montreal, mm -hmm. and if you can imagine the Anglo-speaking uh, production community, Montreal is so small. So there, there is um, interest to grow that. Um, our production team has been coming back after year after year after year because we do these five movies. So uh, we've had film schools uh, come onto set. Um, our crew is extremely collaborative and open to having film students shadow them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the only opportunity to grow that community in Montreal is to, is to have those initiatives available. Um, myself in development, um, you know, we predominantly take pitches that come in through agents um, or managers. Um, I think the, the challenge that we're finding is we get pitched a lot of the same stories. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you have to, you know, overturn those rocks. And the only way to do that is to come out to um, initiatives like Real World, going to Banff and speaking to uh, the, the creators that come through the Banff Diversity of Voices program. And, oh, uh -oh. someone just got broken into <laughs> um, and and find those people, find those projects. Um that are a little bit different, a little bit off kilter. Mm -hmm. um, we try to create a slate that is extremely diverse, um, and we want to take risks on projects. So my door in development is quite open. Um, it's 
the, the, the onus is really on me to get out there and find out who are these unique voices, who are these new people coming up uh, through, uh, through different programs. Um, so, you know, on the mentorship side, mm -hmm. I am currently mentoring someone right now. Um, they're actually not in the industry, but have a curiosity of the industry. And I think the only way to do that is starting in school and really convincing people if you have a creative drive, um, don't go into law, don't go into <laughs> accounting, don't go into medicine, uh, really feed that creative drive. And uh, and I think it starts with uh, with school programs. I know I'm rambling now. No, but, no, no. Um, I think I think film school is, yeah. is an important thing to talk about because you, you sort of build a peer group in a film school environment. And, um, you know, I, I'm familiar with teams of people that have sort of come up through the Ryerson, you know, or through the Yorks or the Sheridans that have sort of built a shorthand with each other through two or three or four years of, of university or college. I think that's an interesting way to sort of be noticed and be asked to shadow is, is a really strong calling card. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that sort of has definitely opened doors with us before, too. Yeah, I, I will also just add on um, something that I want to mention is we strongly believe in partnering writers up mm -hmm. so if there if there is a writer um, an up-and-coming writer that comes through our doors that has a really fascinating project we will try to match them with either a senior story editor or a senior writer to help shepherd that project um, it's it's a very specific type of relationship um, you know we're always mindful that the senior person is letting uh, the junior person run creatively and they're really just more or less acting as a guide and mentor for them. Um, but we strongly believe in that partnership and being mindful of what that partnership uh, can, can achieve for that junior writer. Yeah. Jennifer, can you, can you talk about, um, on your own productions, how you've worked with people that are emerging or trying to sort of uh, break into the industry? Um, yeah, it was always very important to me, again, for the same reasons why I became a producer in the first place, was the absence of, you know, Indigenous voices and participation in the industry. Um, my first drama series um, called Moccasin Flats about 17 years ago, um, we designed a training program that took 35 youth from the inner city who didn't have a lot of um, access to any programs. Many of them weren't even in school. And we partnered them with mentors on the production. I would say, you know, we had three seasons of that show. And then over the years, um, some of them stayed in touch with me. That maybe five make a living today still in the industry. And that makes me very proud that, you know, it, it didn't take a huge effort. Like we had to raise maybe an extra $100,000, you mm -hmm. know, over a period of time to pay them. But it's not very hard to raise money when you're, you know, when you're not afraid of cold calling and knocking on doors and showing up at people's offices and showing statistics about how the arts, you know, saves, save lives and the film industry has a, the potential to, you know, engage with an at-risk um, youth community and really change their prospects and you know, for for a future that they didn't know existed. So I think that for the kind of community that I work with, I think mentoring is one of the most crucial elements of what I do um, because it's it's it keeps it more sort of focused on a social movement. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think I would be able to be in this industry without that. I think it's it's a, a really difficult industry. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, we also maybe need to push our unions a bit more. Um, I know, I don't know if you went through this, but when we were doing Book of Negroes, we were really struggling to find more black keys uh, in Canada. And, you know, the ones that were here were already actually working on a lot of American shows. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about that and, and maybe some training opportunities in your work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, it's, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, obviously you've worked in Nova Scotia before. So I think the thing to understand, like I would say about Nova Scotia is that, you know, when you're making a show there, the, the crews are 
you know, they're predominantly white and uh, they're older mm -hmm. um, just because of the, you know, the tax credit situation there um, or how it's perceived. Um, so for us and for me, one of the things that I kind of had decided going into the second season of the show was I wanted to make sure that there was a key of color or someone who, so like, or for example, if, you know, the construction crew were all men in season one, I wanted it more gender mixed mm -hmm. in season two. So that was sort of the, the mandate that I'd walked into season two with prior to prep. And so when I arrived, you know, there were some play, some instances within the the certain departments where there was some pushback on those things. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> I know yeah, Nova Scotia, of course. <laughs> well, and also it's that, it's that whole thing of like, yeah. you know, in a, in an area where there might be two shows coming through a year, you're going to make sure your friend has a show as opposed to hiring somebody new. So. We had a lot of tough conversations, mm -hmm. and things were corrected. And you know, we got very close to our goal of having, you know, whether it was like half of our drivers were women, or ensuring that there were like you know, uh, diverse people in the construction team. I mean, like those were just things that we spent we spent time to work on, and it was it was difficult, but at the same time it pays off in dividends. I think one of the issues that it's easy to point to uh, to not hire diverse is the unions. Because, of course, people are members of the union. If you're a member of the union, you're supposed to get the first call. Yeah. So it, it, it's all of these things. It's and, like self-perpetuating in some ways. Yeah. yeah. And so what we did is that before we actually <clears throat> Before we before we started production, we actually met with the unions and just basically said, "This is what we're trying to do, and we're going to want your help." And also, I mean, the other thing for us is that you know part of the thing for me is that our show is shooting in uh, predominantly black communities within Nova Scotia, so I just think it's a bad look for us to be walking, for me to be taking an all-white crew <laughs> into North Preston, you know? Like, I, I want to make sure that, you know, the crew is reflective of, and to certain respects, of that community. And, and I think when we talk about diversity in filmmaking, it's not just about the two faces that are number three and five on yeah. the call sheet, but it's about the it's creative everyone. team, it's who's making it, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's, so it's... It, it's an interesting process to go through. I mean, one of the things that we did this year, which I was very happy with, is that we, we partnered with Screen Nova Scotia, which is an advocacy group there, mm -hmm. to find like five uh, mentees who we could bring onto the production in roles that they were interested in getting to see. And so we had somebody in the, uh, the design department, someone working with shadowing the director, you know, someone working in the, uh, in the office, so just to kind of give them a sense, of, like, because everybody had a different thing that they wanted to do and, have, and be able to experience in terms of a film set. So we were able to do that this year in a formal way, and I just think that the hope is that if we had a third season that we'd continue to, to do that. Great. That's fantastic. Um, can you add anything to that? Adam, on stuff well, that you guys have made? I, well, I guess one sort of antidote I can make, and we, we sort of just looked at it after the fact, are out of the five movies that we've done this year in Montreal, um, our key crew has been 50-50 men and women. And there was really no sort of forward-thinking thought process mm -hmm. in, in, in coming up with that. It just so happened. I think that was, that's the amazing thing about our production. Um, now, on our third movie of the year, our key cast were all women. It was written by a female, um, directed by a female, first assistant director female, second assistant director female, and a female producer. And, you know, it's... 
again, it just so happened. Um, so we're proud about that after the fact, but um, it's something that um, that we can sort of look at and be like, wow, maybe it's something about the Montreal creative community that um, people are taking uh, taking shots, and there's um, on our part. Um, we've had those people come into our production and shadow and have really grown right. throughout the team that they've gotten that opportunity to become assistant director and director. Um, so, you know, that, that's sort of our, um, our approach to, to production on the, um, on the development side, if I can just shine a light, um, for us, a story is a story is a story. Um, you know, if, if it's really, if it's really a captivating story and, and it's something that we are passionate about and the creator is passionate about, um, you know, it could it can come from anywhere. It can be a diverse person, um, a man, a woman. We look at the story. The story is a story. Um, you know, we're always mindful that people who have unique perspectives and unique backgrounds come from a unique place because they've got those stories to tell. Um, but uh, first and foremost, for us, it comes down to the to the creative itself. Yeah. yeah. Are are you finding like with your your Mexican story that um, there's now actually um, proof of the kind of audiences that expect stories coming from a lot of different you know places a lot of different voices that have traditionally been showcased um, is that is that a trend that you're seeing right now yeah well you know I think I think people want to see themselves on screen mm -hmm. and um, you know in Canada itself, we're such a diverse country. Um, people want to see their stories told. Um, you know, I want to see a a gay, transgender, uh, black, white, female, whatever person as that central character telling their story and their perspective. And it doesn't just have to be because um, they are gay or they are transgender or they are black or they are Hispanic. Um, it, it's just intrinsic to the story and I think people want to um, want to either relate or see themselves on screen um, I would argue that that is a trend now um, it's not just a character flaw in a character it's a character like that's who they are yeah um, and I, I think so, you look at yeah. a show like pose um, totally. you know that's showing up on American network television I don't think that five years ago I could have anticipated that that show would have played on air and been a successful given you know how specific that point of view is yeah um, Jen what do you think um, <laughs> um, is, is this uh, is this a trend that's growing are you seeing this in indigenous storytelling I don't know I feel like I've been so um, kind of like focused on just desperately trying to kind of carve a space that I'm not really that up to date with really what's happening entirely. I try mm -hmm. to be, but it's I find it difficult to like focus on creating and developing and producing and numbers and admin and all that stuff. And I don't have enough time to really see what's going on. But I am going to Imaginative next week, and I do intend on watching a lot of content. I do think it, I mean, we sit on the Harold Greenberg board, and I think that definitely even in the time that I've been with the board, I've seen more Indigenous content come through, um, like authentic content, um, than you know than when I first started. So I think it's it's a trend. I I still you know I still marvel when I walk through networks. You know maybe up until Digstown, I mean I didn't even see anything at any network with anyone of a diverse background on any poster. As, as far as like recent stuff you're talking as, you about. Know, last, yeah. You know, up until yeah. last year, you know, any, yeah. any network. And I think that that's a problem. Yeah. I think that it's not reflective of who we are in Canada. And, you know, I don't, you know, whatever it is, I think that we, our classrooms, our, you know, our grocery stores look a lot different in real life than they do on television. On television, right? yeah. And I think that, yeah, it... it it makes you feel, no matter who you are, I'm pretty sure this happens to anyone of any background, like 
a little bit invisible of, you know, we want to be a part of the stories that we're seeing. So I think we all have to work harder and the people on the, you know, executive levels, you know, those ones that are really trying to push, you know, but there's another level on top of that, which, you know, who dictate in the, in the day when we, when we began, it was, you know, who's buying Tide and yeah. who's buying, you know, yeah. things are changing now. And I think that the reason we're seeing more, um, diversity in the real sense of the word um, is because the the field has gotten bigger and you know financing has changed a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and, and the heft of, of buying power has led to way more diversity in advertising. I'd say it's probably more diverse the ads on television, the actual yeah. content. But I mean, I, I remember being told when I opened my first production company, I was like 25 trying to raise money for a show and someone at Ford told me your community doesn't buy enough cars for us to put any money into this. Like, you know, I wasn't even asking for money. I was asking for an in-kind car mm -hmm. to, to drive wow. on the show. And it was like, oh, okay. That's weird because every res I go to, it's all Fords, but okay. <laughs> I, I, I think that's the problem. And I think the, and I don't want to make this too issue-based, mm -hmm. but I think on the conventional television side, and I've worked at the broadcaster, so I have to be careful what I say, you know, for them, it's they're so advertiser-based, yeah. and the TV show is just filling space between commercial break to commercial break. But, you know, I do agree with you. I think the stories that are being told that are that people want to see are on the platforms, are on the cable services. And those are the networks that are taking risk and finding success. Um, you know, if you look at the Emmys, uh, very few conventional shows are, are in those categories. And they're not taking home awards. Because people are, people are wanting to see a different perspective. And they're wanting to be challenged when they watch TV. You know, we look to television now as much more of a cinematic experience. So we we do want we do want that escape. We do want that aesthetic that we would get if we were sitting in a dark movie theater on television, and that's happening. Um, that's happening with these really small, sometimes big OTT services. Um, and you know the projects we're working on um, actually a book series now um, about an Aboriginal detective. Um, so we should talk after because maybe we can. <laughs> figure out some, some opportunities there. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but, you know, we may just not take it to a Canadian uh, conventional broadcaster because um, it's a little bit of a different story, a little bit of a different really perspective. And, and what's nice is you don't have to anymore. Don't have to. Right? But you know, and it's really true, because I, I mean, I talk about this a lot with people who are trying to figure out how to create workshops for audiences and, you know, people who want to learn more about the industry and the big the big question mark is the platform question because yeah. it's you know 10 years ago 15 years ago we were saying it's you know we want to get on cable where you're uncensored and you can be more raw and the women don't have to be so this and you can put a person of color up here and now it's not that. And was that a bird? Yeah, there's a couple. Um, <laughs> um, now it's 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 not even about cable. It's about the platforms. It's like you can yeah. do anything over here. This is the fun place to be because yeah. you can literally get away with anything. Right cable schmable. Yeah. <laughs> and I think they're taking shots on like up and coming auteur, sometimes no name creators. Yeah. Um, so yeah. That's well, because you you have less to lose, sure. I think, right? Yeah. And. It's it, it's exciting. It's yeah. really exciting. Yeah, Floyd. Anything to add? I'm going to throw the uh, throw it, this it, open. anything I would say would be end up like I have a completely different point of view. <laughs> Let's hear it. That's what this. this is about. Let's hear it. Well, I mean, first of all, I hate the word trend. It just like because if it's trendy now, it just means it won't be trendy five years from now. So I I just think that you know for me like I mean. Wow, <laughs> I've I've been in the industry for a long time, and uh, I just, for me, like, I've always felt that, you know, it's the I think, like I remember that when I years ago, you know, I was like wondering to myself, like, why, like, why did we take a step backwards 
when North of 60 was on, and like we had this like momentum happening with indigenous people being part of the story, and we could have just then we it just there's this assumption made that we're not interested in watching those stories, and I think that's like garbage, and I think a lot I think a lot of what's happened in the way that Canadian television has been programmed and continues to be programmed is that the broadcasters continue to believe that people, the broader, broader Canadian audiences are not interested in diverse stories, period. Which is why you don't have a ton of shows, even now, that where you have like a lead of color. I mean, our show, like fortunately, you know, CBC, got behind us. I mean, I, I don't know what happened. Maybe just because we went in and pitched it. Maybe, you know, we went in, we were the first meeting after the, the holidays, so maybe they were just like, we're in a good mood, let's like develop this, right? But they just were ready to take it. But I mean, when I look at the other broadcasters, and I mean, not to knock them, this is just truth. I mean, you know, I know that C CTV has a show that's coming out, which is great. I think it's about a Syrian doctor called The Transplant. So it's great that they're moving into the space. But I just think that, you know, we have to be, co like, we have to be cognizant of the fact that Canada is not the US. And what's happening in the US is amazing. Because, you know, services like, uh, you know, Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, they're doing, what do they call it? It's like they're micro-programming. So they're, they're willing to spend, you know, $20 million on, you know, six episodes of a show that's just for this niche audience. And they're happy to do that. Whereas it, with the idea that if it crosses over in the, into the culture, great. Um, but I just think that in Canada, we, first of all, we don't have the money. Um, because, you know, there's the, the joy of a publicly funded system is that, you know, we get to make stuff, you know, and, you know, it's not, it's not just about, you know, like, it's not the mercenary, we're not that, we're not completely mercenary to the advertisers. We actually, if, if you know, you actually get to make programming that is culturally relevant, that's important in this country. Um, but, yes, but at the same time, you know, we have we have limited dollars. So where you know the average budget for an American show, like I, I was listening to uh, a podcast this morning, and they were talking about uh, the new show with Jennifer Aniston and uh, Reese Witherspoon, the, the morning, morning show. Twelve million dollars an episode. They're each being paid two million dollars an episode. That is the budget, episode budget of my show. <laughs> That's Mine's for one of them. Yeah. <laughs> one person, one of their salaries. Yeah, so, Sli so slightly different market. So, so it's like, just the comparisons are like, you know, it's like oranges and pineapples. So, I mean, for me, I just, I kind of, like when I think about, go, like I, so I'm going to LA uh, on Sunday and I've, and I've booked, like, a, 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 I'm booking meetings. And I reached out to a friend of mine who's from Los Angeles, and they, they were talking about the, stream, the streamers. And we're like, well, who do you know there? Who's the contact? And so he went through the list, and he just was saying, oh, yeah, don't even bother going to them, because they don't want to talk to anybody unless they're a, an A-list person. And don't go to them, because they don't want to talk to anybody unless they're an A-list person. Go to them and go to this person. And so to me, like, I just feel like I don't, I mean, I, I think it's different when you go with a production company that has like a long history of making shows and has lots of relationships. But I think as a creator, and as, I mean, you guys are all, you know, first starting out, some of you, I just think that it's really important to be realistic about the fact that, you know, if you wanna go to a streamer or get meetings with these people in the US, first of all, you gotta have an agent you got to have a manager or a lawyer in Los Angeles who's willing to share your work with that person or you have to go in with a production company attached because you know yes there are exceptions to every rule but for the most part they're not going to talk to you unless you have representation 
I mean, I, like my agent has like set up a slew of meetings mm -hmm. for me, and that's only happening because he's there doing it. Yeah, right. And and you've you've got your calling card. You've you've done your work that has led to that point. Yeah, um, I mean, well, he he said to me point blank because I'm like, uh, why? I was like, well, why didn't you do this for me ten years ago? He's like, because ten years ago you weren't a showrunner. Now everybody <laughs> wants to see you. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Okay, it's time for questions, guys. Uh, I'm getting the wave here. So who's who's got a burning question? Hi there. Good to see you. Good to see you, Damon. Outside of tea rooms in mm -hmm. off the way locations. Anyway, I have two questions. One is about the Harold Greenberg Fund. I got funding years ago as a writer, and now I notice that you already have to have a producer attached to get funding as a, a writer, and I'm just wondering why that is. And the second is, if you have a concept and you want to pitch it and you don't have an agent, what's the best approach? Do you want to do the HGF and the... Well, a lot of things have changed at HGF. I think it's the whole fund is in a major transition. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, the well finances first and foremost, and where the money is best spent. And I think that was how it was determined: was that, yeah. you know, things that will get made have a producer attached. Yeah, and and also I think um, if you're a first timer, it. Your, your project has um, more bankability, I'd say, if you can come in, maybe not with a producer, but with an executive producer who has a track record, I think that's the other way that yeah. you can approach the fund. The one thing I will say is that they've been really expanding um, on the calling card side. There are a number of initiatives that have just sort of fallen into place for short films. So what's great, it's like a kind of one-stop shop. If you want to make a short film, even a first short, they will just sort of look at your package, look at your your prior work if you have any, and, and uh, analyze the script. And I, I know there's initiatives pretty much across the country now, depending on where you live, uh, for, for getting those shorts made. Um, your second question, I'm going to ask Floyd if he can address that. How to get material uh, seen if you don't have an agent? Um, can you just clarify, seen by whom? a network executive to have a look at it and you don't have an agent yet? Well, I, I think you're hitting on one of the problems that we haven't actually talked about in terms of Canadian broadcasting. And that is that outside of the CBC, there aren't really a lot of executives of color in the ranks. And if they are there, they're junior executives, so they don't have any power. So I would say that, you know, it's a challenge. I mean, because really the only, like, CBC is required on some level, and this was explained to me years ago, that if you submit something to them, they're required on, on some level to respond to you, which they do, because I, I know people who have, don't have agents who've submitted work to them, and they've gotten a response. Um, in terms of the privates, I don't know what to say to you because I, I have I have been in situations and recently where I've gone in, you know, and yes, you can get you can go in and you can pitch the network, but they don't get back to you. So I would just say that you have to like, you know, you be persistent. Um, see if you can find a producer who like. Likes your, who likes your work enough to, that they're willing to submit it for you. If you have friends who are in the industry who have connections to broadcasters, try to go that route. But it, it, honestly, there, is, there isn't an easy answer to the question. I'm sorry. Adam? Yeah, just to piggyback off what Floyd is saying, um, I, I do agree with you. It's tough to go right to the broadcaster without having an agent. Um, go to a production company first. You know, I think as as we all know, this industry is relationship driven. So the the ownership is on you to find the producer um, who sees eye to eye with you. And maybe it's not sending your material right to them as the first order of business. Maybe it's forging that relationship, um, seeing if creatively you and them um, share a lot of the same values. And once that relationship gets to a certain point, um, 
pull that project out of your back pocket and be like, I've got this amazing concept. I know I don't have an agent. Would you take a read? Um, maybe just even give me some notes. You don't have to take this into development, but is there anything that you, you know, any, any insight you can provide? Um, and, and I would put your energy towards that. It takes a lot of time. It's not going to happen um, in a day or a night or a week. Um, so put that energy in building a relationship with a, with a producer. Anything to add, Jen? You know, I think a lot of us, when we're younger, we think, uh, oh, like, how do I get into that broadcaster and how do I get a meeting? But as a writer or a, as a writer... But you don't really want to do that by yourself anyways. I mean, I think it's more about shifting that perspective that, you know, first of all, you want to, you want your work to be protected. So a producer, again, if you create that relationship with someone, they're going to ask you to sign documents that gives them the right to exploit that, that piece of work to whoever they want. So... I think the first step is to find a producer, unless you are a producer and you're ready to answer the questions that are going to be asked of you once you get to the broadcaster. I don't think it's about having an agent or, you know, even having aspirations of being a writer and having something on paper and going to a broadcaster. I think you should spend all of your time nurturing relationships and going to these kinds of things and having people see your work and maybe try to get into a writer's room as a shadow and just see how it works and what people are talking about. It's pretty, you know, even at... I don't have an agent. I've never had an agent for what I do as a producer, but I am relentless in calling people and getting into the room. And I would say, you know, nine times out of 10, they're not calling me back or they're not interested in what I'm selling or, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, we go through a very similar process. The one thing that I'll say uh, with regards to getting representation as a writer that can be helpful, and I know someone that was able to do it, um, by submitting a really great spec script to American writing contests, and there's like three or four, um, and they didn't win, but they came close to winning, and they used their spec script as a way of opening a door to a smaller agent in the U.S., and it was actually, it's hard to get an agent in Canada. It was actually easier for them to get to, to get set up in the U.S., um, and it was through that, because, you know, the, the, the doors can be fairly closed until you actually get some credits under your belt. Damon, which three were you talking about? Uh, which the, three writing um, contests? I, I don't remember. I'll, oh, I'd okay. have to look them up. Okay. Um, I just felt like I wanted to add this. First of all, it's exciting. Jennifer, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan for not just your work, but for your humanity. Really big time. But anyways, um, and nice to see you and everybody. But anyways, um, I just feel like we're at this um, festival um, that came out of somebody's dream, you know? And I, and I feel like a lot of people said no. And, and I, I, I don't know, I've never spoken to Tanya about this, but I, I have a feeling that she surpassed those who said no, and that she probably didn't read a lot of books on it. It doesn't mean they're not relevant, but I just think that um, if you don't have an agent and you don't have, you know, you're not married to somebody in the industry and you're not doing whatever some people do to get, you know, to get in the door, you just have to hang on to your dreams. I don't mean that it's willy-nilly and that there's no um, education or uh, informative stuff that goes along with that. But here we are at the Real World Film Festival, and we are all of backgrounds that may have been um, less welcomed in the room, and yet we still got into the room. And so I think we have to um, acknowledge that. So that's what I wanted to share. Thank you. And on that note, yeah. I think uh, let's say thank you to all these wonderful panelists. <laughs>